Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. Welcome to the Sex and Murder podcast. Today's episode, we'll be looking at an exorcism, so we might just go straight into it. Michael Taylor, 30 years old in 1974, was husband to Christine and father to four children. He's reported as having been a good, doting father and husband. Within the span of a month, Michael would go from a religiously ambivalent man to a frothing, bloody man screaming about demons, culminating in a brutal murder. Our sources for this episode include The Sussex Devils by Mark Heal, as well as A History of Anglican Exorcism by Francis Young. A word of warning before we start, if it's not apparent, there will be talk of possession and demons, but also the nature of the murder is quite unsettling and quite frankly disgusting, and there's a quick mention of animal death. So what might happen to cause this mild man to fall into a fervorous religious group? Let's have a quick look at the landscape in the mid-70s England. Kenneth O'Morgan has a great paper called Britain in the 70s, Our Unfinest Hour, in which he says that, in popular culture, the 1970s should have gone down as the Dark Ages, Britain's gloomiest period since the Second World War, set between Harold Wilson's swinging 60s and Margaret Thatcher's divisive 80s. According to Morgan, there are four major negative aspects of that decade. There were conflict and class war in industry, a sharp downturn in the economy, a flight to extremism in political life, and a rise in public and domestic violence. Despite repeated balance payment problems and forced devaluation of the pound in 1967, the Labour government of the 60s kept things in a reasonably stable condition. Employment was high and inflation was under control. The 1973 oil crisis shouldered much of the blame when a recession hit, lasting from 1973 to 1975. The Industrial Relation Act of 1971 led to the largest trade union protests for two generations, and two national coal miners' strikes in 1972 and the beginning of 1974. January 1974 led to a national state of emergency. The three-day work week and a general election was called by Heath on the theme, Who Governs Britain? The answer appeared to be the unions, since Heath was defeated and had to resign. This economic background is useful to note the potential mindset of Michael. Michael himself was a little troubled. A butcher by trade, it seems he had back problems that made it difficult for him to work, though he seemed to tough through it since money was tight at the best of times. Now, we'll circle back on this theme in a moment, but the stress for the responsibility for providing for his family would sometimes get Michael down, and it was noted that sometimes he suffered from bouts of depression. Despite this, though, he cared for his family. Everyone commented on how much Michael and Christine seemed to be in love, Michael's father commenting they were still courting throughout their marriage. Throughout this marriage, there hadn't really been any inclination that either of them had been religiously inclined. Michael said that they found the ceremony and the rituals of church services rather off-putting, but ultimately didn't feel strongly about religion in any particular way, 
It just was something that never really crossed their minds. So what caused them to attend a meeting in September 1974, we will never really know. Their friendly neighbour, Brava Wardman, invited them to join her in attending the Gorba Christian Fellowship Group. Barbara had been attending this church for a while and attested to its wonderfulness. Perhaps the bleak-looking future pushed them just enough to want some hope and friendship that the church promised to offer. Besides, if they didn't like it, it was only a short drive back home. The Christian Fellowship Church was part of the St. Thomas Anglican Church. In the years following up to the Taylor's visit, there had been somewhat of a doctrinal shift. Like Jeff Goldblum at the end of the fly, St. Thomas had melded and fused with a new type of thinking, the charismatic belief system. The Anglicans were the first groups to be influenced by this new thinking, but before the 60s ended, it had infiltrated the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, and eventually the Methodists. The Cambridge Dictionary of Christian Theology considers the charismatic movement an expression of Pentecostal spirituality that resides outside the denominal structures of the classical Pentecostal tradition. It dubs this new form Neo-Pentecostal. Now, what does this mean for someone who might barely be able to tell the difference between Catholic and Protestant? Well, what this movement has done is taken the beliefs and practices of Pentecostalism and applied it to other Christian sects. Now, take a standard Anglican church. We have what you would consider a very basic Christian belief system. Notice flashes the Catholic Church with their love of ceremonies and extra-religious dogma in addition to the Bible, but at the same time, they aren't quite as minimalist as the Protestants. They're more so happy to engage in some public worship and flash around some public expressions of their faith. I'm painting with broad strokes, but you get the idea. The charismatic movement takes the belief system and filters it through the Pentecostal belief of bona fide miracles. There is a stress on personal encounters with life-changing spirit and acknowledging encounters with it as signs and wonders. These encounters are nothing short of miracles. We have them speaking in tongues, divine healing, and spiritual discernment. It's Christianity with a dash of mysticism, if you will. As with Pentecostal groups, there's a predilection for spontaneous liturgies, repetitive choruses that replace more traditional hymns and chants. In short, the Church of England was rigid and traditional in worship, and the charismatic services were spontaneous, musical, and intensely emotional. The charismatics were passionate, joyful. They spoke in a plain language, offered knowledge through simplicity and certainty and passion. Oh, and they believed that the devil was not some sort of conceptual moral entity limited to a force that causes sin as seen in some sects, but rather a living, breathing entity, a, a human, flesh and blood, human style creature that actively caused sin and harm in people's lives. The church services were filled with people crushed by the contemporary world around them, hoping to answer their dreams and escape their troubles of everyday life. 
The house meetings that Barbara Woodman attended were led by a young preacher called Marie Robinson. Image link in the podcast description. The Taylors were happily surprised at the meeting. Everyone was welcoming and eager to get to know them. They weren't, quote, stuck-up Jesus freaks. They were just normal people, grocers, accountants, school teachers, what have you. They didn't need hymn books, nor were there any rituals that they had to observe. Everyone was allowed to speak, pray, and sing. The message during the service must have struck a chord with the Taylors. During that first house meeting, under the guidance of Marie Robinson, they converted to Christianity before they even left. It wouldn't be long before Michael and Christine were considered valued members of the group, their house becoming an additional venue for the house meetings. Over the next few weeks, inspired by Marie Robinson, Michael, a quiet, not religious man, began to regularly speak in tongues. Marie Robinson became a mentor to the Taylors. Perhaps it was the religious bliss, or he simply wasn't thinking with his head, but Michael grew close to Marie. She was a charismatic, well-spoken, evangelical Christian, overflowing in passion for her faith, eager to instruct. Michael, caught up in the high of breaking the Christianity speedrun record, developed feelings towards the 22-year-old minister. One night, shortly after their conversion, Barbara visited the Taylors, and she found Michael with his arms on Marie's shoulders. Barbara felt the tension in the air, and, in front of her, Michael told Marie that he, quote, loved her with a Christian love, a love that could hurt no one. Barbara was weirded out by this interaction, but ultimately said nothing. Marie Robinson would later describe herself as a, quote, normal Jesus freak. But here's where the seeds of exorcisms were sowed. Marie was not a stranger to occult practices. She had taken part in several exorcisms, or at the very least been present at them. She had been with the Reverend Peter Vincent when he once expelled a couple of particularly violent demons. The night after Michael's declaration of totally Christian love, Marie would attempt an exorcism during a service. Accounts from that night all say how truly awful the experience was. The services would often have nights where emotions ran high. It was only natural. The members were all part of a support system, and it offered a chance for people to pour out their troubles and maybe get some advice. So that night, it wasn't exactly odd that everyone was in the mood of emotional intensity. An older spinster, a lady named Mavis Smith, who was going through a period of depression for the past few weeks, began to sob. Now, a more rational and compassionate person would probably ask her what's wrong, provide an ear, some words of comfort, and if appropriate, put forth a plan to help her in the future. Hell, even a session where they stopped and prayed for her would have been rational in this case. Marie jumped on the opportunity, however, to pass judgment that this moment, this moment here, was caused by capital E, evil. And invasive capital E evil that must immediately be cast out. She would then and there exercise Mavis. Marie would later say, quote, in retrospect and with hindsight, I knew this was wrong. I started shaking. I'm not a nervous person. So in me, it meant the power of the Holy Spirit was within me. 
In the eyes of the upset Mavis, she saw a preacher approaching her, jittering as if she were having a fit. Before she could consider fleeing, Marie made contact with her, laying her hands on Mavis and beginning the exorcism. Marie would explain what happened next. Quote, I laid my hands on her and prayed. I think I prayed in tongues, because I did not want her to know what I was praying for. She showed a great animosity directed straight at me. I thought she hated me. Old Mavis reacted violently to Marie's sudden assault. Other accounts of the night described the scene as disturbing. Marie was screaming about demons and Mavis was trying to fight her off. This act hit the tailors. This welcoming new group was now seen in a new, more slightly sinister light. Peggy Gilby would later comment that Michael and Christine started to become very nervous of Marie. It was this time that Christine would also see the relationship forming between Marie Robinson and her husband. Michael's good Christian passion also seemed to include a passion for someone who wasn't God, as he was spending an awful lot more time with Marie Robinson. Of course, Christine was happy for Michael's newfound faith and was happy for him to explore it, provided he didn't explore Marie's body. Christine would often write off this suspicion as part of her imagination playing tricks on her. But sometimes it seemed as though when Michael paid particular attention to Marie, she did very little to dissuade him. Either way, the next time the fellowship assembled at the tailors, Christine decided it was time to call out and sort out this situation before it really got too far. In front of the entire group, she stood up, addressing Michael and Marie, saying that this situation needed to be resolved. Christine suggested that Michael and Marie be left alone for a few moments to set things right. Michael and Marie were then provided a space by way of an upstairs room. Now we can only go by what Marie reported happened in the room that night, but according to her, once the door was closed, Michael began to speak in tongues. Wait, no, tongue. Michael began to stick his tongue down her throat. Marie recounted, quote, The whole of my being reacted completely against that. We just snapped apart. It was like a clash of wills, a clash of spirits, perhaps. And I said, Mike, you know this is wrong. You know you love Chris. Michael agreed to quell his um, emotions. The pair then asked Christine to return. Of course, it wasn't just Christine. The rest of the members followed her, hoping to hear what was up. Michael announced, We have won a great victory for the Lord. A miracle has happened. We have both overcome our passions. Okay, so now just, just imagine for a moment being in the room with them. Christine asked Michael and Marie to have a moment to acknowledge the closeness and establish some boundaries, and instead Michael comes out and says, It's okay, I prayed the boner away. Michael had just admitted to wanting to have sex with the preacher. Now, obviously, this went through Michael's mind, because according to Marie, he underwent a sudden and sinister transformation. Quote, I glanced at Mike, and his whole features seemed to have changed. He looked almost bestial. There was a wild look in his eyes. I started screaming out of fear. I started speaking in tongues. Mike was also screaming at me in tongues. I did not know what he was saying or what I was saying. We just screamed at each other. Then Mike started slapping my face. 
Michael would later testify that he felt an evil force take over. Quote, she was stabbing me with her eyes, he told police. I can still see those eyes. I saw her standing naked before me, and I was naked. Marie, quote, Chris tried to pull him off me. Somehow we were at the other side of the room away from her. He was crouching over me, ready to kill. It was like the pictures of lions ready to kill their prey. I really tasted fear in my mouth. I knew that Jesus would save me, and I started saying his name over and over. With the combined efforts of several members, Michael was pulled off of Marie. She was left scratched and bruised. The next morning, Michael was in anguish over the situation. It didn't really help that Marie came over later that day hoping to see Michael. You see, the smart thing would have been to let the dust settle for a couple of weeks, maybe touch base while there was other parties around. Not Marie. Thankfully, Christine met her at the door and said, I have to get you and Michael apart. Please go. Soon the senior members of St. Thomas had heard about this incident. Before moving to St. Thomas, Peter Vincent had been vicar of the Church of St. John the Divine in a nearby town between 1963 and 1971. Vincent was an enthusiastic exorcist, to say the least. In line with the charismatic movement he introduced to St. Thomas, he believed in the power of healing hands and the casting out of demons, just as Jesus himself performed. Vincent would describe these events as, quote, wonderful. The Reverend and his wife Sally met with the Taylors to get their side of the story. Michael told the Reverend that Marie was the one at fault. She had tried to seduce him and in front of his own wife. Not only that, he seemed to suspect that she had somehow caused him to be possessed. Now what we know of Vincent, he doesn't seem to be the type to tell Michael to calm down and discuss the possibility of maybe seeing a shrink, and that's because he didn't. Vincent was completely on board with the demon explanation. Maybe he was intimidated at Marie's youth and charisma, or maybe it was his wife's lowly opinion of her that influenced him. Either way, they agreed with Michael that he was under some kind of demonic influence and that Marie was the cause of it. This hypothesis of demonic possession was only strengthened over the next couple of weeks. News came in to Peter Vincent about Michael and his behaviour. He was clearly emotionally unbalanced. It seemed Marie was the focal point of this aggression and anything related to her. He began reacting violently to anything that had to do with religion, symbols, or representations of faith. He told neighbours that he had seen the devil. Outside of his home, he would kneel in the street and scream. Inside his own home, he would destroy crosses and religious books. He also became fearful of the moon. He was afraid of its connection to Marie's power. Now, of course, of course, this could very well be a case for demonic possession. Or, maybe, just maybe... This could be a man whose mind has gone through some serious emotional whiplash, experienced a nervous breakdown that completely melted his mind. 
He went from being a normal man with mild depression to a hardcore religious type in the matter of an evening. He was rejected by a woman he loved and in public in front of not just his wife but also his recently found emotional safety net. His mental break was then fed by the reverend confirming his reality he had created. A sensible response might have been for Michael to ease himself away from the group hysteria, taking a few days or even weeks to spend some time with the wife and kids, ground himself, forget about religion, just relax, maybe check in with the psychiatrist and do a mental health check. Well, the tailors actually planned on doing this, but not before Peter Vincent stepped in. On the 4th of October, Christine Taylor called in at Barbara Wardman's house. Barbara commented on how tired and exhausted she looked. Christine told Barbara that they would not be attending fellowship meetings anymore. They were going to return to their quiet life. Barbara asked if she was alright. According to Barbara, quote, Chrissy told me that they had been up all night. As soon as it began to get dark and the moon was up, Michael started going on about the moon. They sat downstairs in the sitting room all night, making the sign of the cross over each other to keep each other safe. On the night of the 5th of October, the tailors were summoned to the vicarage of Reverend Vincent. The priest had assembled an elite anti-Satan team, the anti-Satan Avengers, the Ocean Eleven of Jesus, a Justice League of Vicars, Priestly Suicide Squad, X-Men of X-Ministers, you get the idea. Apart from Peter Vincent, there was Sally. She had been deeply suspicious of Marie from the beginning. Sure, she was in league with the devil. Then there was Reverend Raymond Smith, a Methodist preacher from Vincent's old stomping ground, as well as his wife, Peggy. The jury at Michael Taylor's trial would later hear that the pair, quote, described themselves as practitioners in exorcism. And finally, there was Donald James, another Methodist preacher. The exorcism men sat the tailors down and told Michael that they were all convinced that what was ailing him was not a nervous breakdown, but rather the devil, capital D, devil. Michael reacted badly. He threw his tea at Vincent and punched him in the face. The group then restrained Michael. Sally Vincent took the view that he, quote, no longer was in control of his faculties. Quote, there was an enormous force of evil emanating from him because of demonic possession, which required exorcism, which was going to be a long job and would take all night. Raymond Smith, it seemed, had a moment of sense. He asked if Michael could simply be stressed and unbalanced. Maybe they should take him to a hospital or a psychiatrist. The inquest was told that, quote, this was considered and solemnly rejected. Let's talk about exorcism for a moment, since we're about to hear Michael's ordeal. If you're like me and most of your exposure to exorcisms has been pop culture, movies, books and such, then you'll benefit from knowing somewhat of a baseline to the ritual. Now, the rite of exorcism is technically a Catholic how-to guide, but as we'll hear, there's some similarities 
And also, I really couldn't find anything other than this that's a solid here's what to do in an exorcism. So, the riot of exorcism is outlined in a document called Of Exorcisms and Certain Supplications, an 84-page document published in 1999, or at least this was the revised version. It contains a short history focusing mainly on Jesus and the early apostles expelling demons, as well as all the prayers required to complete an exorcism. Now, I'm going to drop back a lot of the details that I don't feel are that necessary, but you'll get the general gist of it all. In the rite of exorcism, apart from the formulas of the exorcism themselves, special attention must be paid to those gestures and rites that have the primary place and meaning derived from their use during the time of purification. Such are the sign of the cross and the imposition of hands, the breathing and the sprinkling with holy water. The rite begins with the sprinkling of holy water, by which, as a memorial of the purification received in baptism, the troubled person is defended against the snares of the enemy. The water may be blessed before the rite, or within the rite itself, before the sprinkling, and, if appropriate, with the commingling of salt. Then follows the prayer of litany, which, by the mercy of God, is invoked upon the troubled person through the disassession of all the saints. After the litany, the exorcist may recite one of several of the psalms that implore the protection of the Most High and the extol of the victory of Christ over the evil one. When the psalm is completed, the exorcist himself may add a psalm prayer. The gospel is then proclaimed as the sign of the presence of Christ, who through his own word in the proclamation of the church brings healing to human infirmities. Afterward, the exorcist imposes his hands upon the troubled person by which the right of the power of the Holy Spirit is invoked, so that the devil will depart from the one through baptism has made the temple of God. At the same time, he may also breathe upon the face of the troubled person. Then the Apostles' Creed is recited, or the baptismal promise of faith is renewed, and the renunciation of Satan. The Lord's Prayer follows by which our God and Father is implored, to set us free from the evil one. When these things are being completed, the exorcist shows the troubled person the Lord's cross, which is the source of every blessing and grace, and the sign of the cross is made over the person, by which Christ's power over the devil is shown. Finally, he petitions God, and in the name of the Christ, the devil is commanded to withdraw from the troubled person. The rite is then concluded with a canticle of thanksgiving, a prayer, and a blessing. So prior to the rite, there are questions. The exorcist asks as many questions as possible to ascertain what type of demon they're dealing with, their name, the reason for possessing the person. The troubled person, who are referred to as the victim, is taken through almost like an absolution or confession, maybe even a renewing of baptismal vows, renouncing evil and sin and such. Then the exorcist begins the rite of exorcism. It is possible that a single rite is not enough and that a victim might undergo multiple exorcisms as part of a single session, or the exorcist might determine that the victim needs to rest and schedule another session for another time. Leaving Christine at the vicarage, under guard of course, the vicar and his party of super exorcists restrained Michael. 
At midnight, quote, they took him down into the church vestry. They laid him down and at times had to hold him down and took in turns to exercise each particular demon. He was made to confess the sins of which he was innocent and was subjected to indignities which defy comprehension. These include having crosses pushed into his mouth as well as sprinkled with holy water. They made a list of the spirits which they had cast out. Incest, bestiality, blasphemy, lewdness, hearsay, masochism, and many others. At one stage, a wooden cross Mr. Taylor was wearing was burned. Michael tried to get away. He was tied down. Over the next seven hours, Vincent claimed to have expelled over 40 demons from Michael. According to the Reverend, by 7am, Michael only had three demons left in him. Murder, violence, and insanity. It's kind of strange that they left those ones for last. I would have expelled those three first and left maybe, say, lewdness, blasphemy, and hearsay. Then, instead of potentially killing in a deranged state, the worst he could have gone done is gotten naked, called himself Yeezy, and said the other Jesus was, like, just a dude. Either way, the exorcists were exhausted by this point in the morning. Please, think of all the talking and holy water flicking that they had done. And Michael, uh, well, he might have been in a state. Now, there's something to be said about how these rituals can affect the mind. We have Michael already in the mindset that he had a demon in him, stirred into a frenzy by all the prayers and chanting, and called on higher powers. His fragile mind got thinner and thinner until that morning when his insanity was hanging on by a mere while. The plan was to conclude the exorcism after all elite demon slayers had had some tea, maybe a biscuit and a nap. Early in the morning, Reverend Peter Vincent contacted the police and told them what had happened in St. Thomas that night. The constable he talked to had no idea what this whole exorcism stuff was about. Keep in mind that this is October 1974, the Exorcist movie had run in cinemas in the UK only about six months ago. But he urged them to get Michael to a GP to check him out. Note, a sensible man. Christine had apparently undergone an exorcism as well, performed by the two women in the Stop Satan squad. She was also in a weakened physical and mental state. She refused to go to a doctor, insisting that she needed to get back to her own home. Christine called a family friend, John Eggins, who drove the traumatized Taylors back home and, and I cannot stress this enough, thankfully took the kids to stay with their grandparents for a while, a few hours out of town. So here's an interaction soon after this as reported by the Reverend himself along with Philip Gill, the coroner, and Julian Hallam acting for the Taylors. Vincent. We did feel very strongly that if Christine returned home without any protection, there would be serious trouble. Gil. There could have been a murder. Vincent. Of her? Yes. We had not been able to expel the spirit of murder. And there was, in Michael's eyes towards the end of the ministry in the vestry, a look that I could only describe as murder. Hallam. You have even gone as far saying that you knew the victim would be Christine, or you were fearful for her safety? Vincent, we were. Hallam, but you left at 7.30am, and that was it? 
you had something else to do? Vincent, I personally left, but that does not mean the subject was dropped. Just after 10am, PC Walker's desk phone rang. He took the details and was soon crouching beside a man covered in blood, screaming forgiveness for himself on a footpath. It was Michael Taylor. Locals began to crowd around as the ambulance piled up. Michael was taken away, still screaming. Walker didn't have to look far to find Michael's house. It was only down the road a little. He thought it would be best to visit the home immediately. It was just at 10.45am when he pulled up to the Taylor's house. He thought he was the first to arrive at the home, but local police sergeant had told him otherwise. The sergeant was pale. Walker told him that he had a call and found Michael Taylor, naked and covered in blood, screaming about the devil. Walker was about to give his opinions on Michael's mental state when a detective inspector walked out of the house. He bent over, hands on knees, and dry heaved, repeating, Oh God, and Oh Jesus. After spitting on the pavement, the dick asked who Walker was, and the sergeant told him that Walker had found Michael. Walker apparently looked like he had thoughts to enter the house, but the detective, who was holding a handkerchief to his mouth, held his hand up in a stop gesture. You married? He asked Walker. Walker confirmed. Kids? Confirmed again. Then you are not coming in, the detective firmly told him. You do not want to see this one, son. I've seen nothing like it before, and I've seen a few. Walker would remember the look in Michael's eyes. The blood. Michael saying whose blood this is. The detective spoke again. It's the wife. She's got no... He's ripped at her, son. It's a mess right there. There's not much of her left. You don't want to see it. Walker felt the need to look. It's the blood of Satan rang through his head. Walker went in and had a look. They couldn't find a weapon. There wasn't any. The blood that covered Michael was Christine's. After 7.30am before 10am, in a brutal display of violence, Michael Taylor killed his wife, his closest companion, in the home where they reared their children. He had ripped her face off, literally, through the skin, past the muscle, down to the bone. He gouged out her eyes and tore out her tongue with bare hands. The home was destroyed. Strips of flesh and pulp matter covered every inch of the room. Christine had died from asphyxiation on her own blood. Beside Christine laid the family dog, prized pet of Christine, strangled and torn apart. Its legs had been ripped from their sockets, the hair, teeth and eyes ripped from the head. In custody later that day, Michael told Detective Inspector Brian Smith about the exorcisms. Quote, it was a long night. They danced around me and burned my cross because it was tainted with evil. They had me in the church all night. Look at my hands. I was banging on the floor. The power was in me. I couldn't get rid of it and neither could they. It was too late. I was compelled by a force within me to destroy everything living in the house. 
Detective Inspector Smith asked him how he felt. Released. I am released. It is done. The evil in her has been destroyed. Then Michael slept. He slept a long time. In 1975, Michael Taylor was tried for the murder of Christine Taylor. He claimed that after the exorcism, Christine was also possessed by demons. He was found not guilty of the crime of murder by any reason of insanity and sent to Broadmoor Mental Hospital. During his trial, everything came to light, his relationship with Marie and the events of the exorcism. This is an extract from the inquest audit. Ognall, to what extent, if at all, did you say that what was practiced upon Michael Taylor that night induced his trance state the following morning? Dr. Milne, consultant psychiatrist. It was entirely related to his trance state and his eventual killing of his wife. Justice Caulfield would then comment, I am not here to interfere with religion. This case is bound to achieve some notoriety but for those who care for us and govern us, may well be concerned. And if they are concerned, they know far better than I what should be done. But those people that Caulfield advised to be concerned weren't really. They didn't really do anything. No other party was held accountable for Christine's murder, even though the exorcist party certainly should have been held accountable for not taking Michael's mental state seriously. It would be another year or two before the case of Annalise Mickles, where her parents and two priests would be held accountable for negligence. The Anglican Church did attempt to place restrictions on the future use of exorcisms. The general mindset was that it was, quote, stupid to grant any degree of recognition to the phenomenon of possession. Though they were kind of in a hard rock and a stuck place, since they couldn't fully denounce the belief in the devil or the danger that he has in our lives because if you dismiss the devil as nonsense, where does that leave God and the rest of the Bible? Evangelicals, on the other hand, considered this a huge success. They didn't see their dangers in Christine's murder, they only saw how one had to complete their mission. Peter Vincent's error wasn't deluded sadism, but carelessness. He had left a pot on to boil instead of finishing his cooking. Michael Taylor spent the next couple of years at Broadmoor, then a couple of years at Bradford Royal Infirmary before being released. In 2005, he was found guilty of indecently touching a teenage girl. He was in jail for this only for a week before he began exhibiting behavior similar to that that preceded Christine's murder in 1974. He went to court again and was again sent to a psychiatric hospital. The years immediately following Christine's death, Taylor had attempted suicide on four separate occasions. Walker would comment after his retirement from the force that nothing affected him in his 30 years with the police more than this case has. It seems of the exorcists, Raymond Smith showed what would be considered remorse saying that he might not have handled the situation well? Quote, If people come to me in trouble of any kind, I will try to help. I would give such comfort as I could, but I am only an ordinary human being, 
with human failings. Peter Vincent, as you can gather from the previous interview with him, had absolutely no remorse. He doubled down and insisted that the reason the tailor acted as he did was because he was slash is troubled by demons. And this is the thing that really annoys me. It would be one thing if, even if it wasn't charged, if he was socially shunned or had any sort of repercussions, but no, his career in the church was fine. In fact, the year after this incident, he was promoted to priest in charge to vicar. This position got him tenure at Gorba, set up for life. When questioned about that night, the obliteration of life, the four kids who would grow up parentless, this monster took it in the cheeriest of strides, saying, quote, God will bring good out of this in his own way. And that concludes the chapter of history about Michael Taylor's botched exorcism. This has been the Sex and Murder Podcast. Thank you for listening. Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. Welcome to the Sex and Murder podcast. Today's episode, we'll be looking at an exorcism, so we might just go straight into it. Michael Taylor, 30 years old in 1974, was husband to Christine and father to four children. He's reported as having been a good, doting father and husband. Within the span of a month, Michael would go from a religiously ambivalent man to a frothing, bloody man screaming about demons, culminating in a brutal murder. Our sources for this episode include The Sussex Devils by Mark Heal, as well as A History of Anglican Exorcism, by Francis Young. A word of warning before we start, if it's not apparent, there will be talk of possession and demons, but also the nature of the murder is quite unsettling and quite frankly disgusting, and there's a quick mention of animal death. So what might happen to cause this mild man to fall into a fervorous religious group? Let's have a quick look at the landscape in the mid-70s England. Kenneth O'Morgan has a great paper called Britain in the 70s, Our Unfinest Hour, in which he says that, in popular culture, the 1970s should have gone down as the Dark Ages, Britain's gloomiest period since the Second World War, set between Harold Wilson's swinging 60s and Margaret Thatcher's divisive 80s. According to Morgan, there are four major negative aspects of that decade. There were conflict and class war in industry, a sharp downturn in the economy, a flight to extremism in political life, and a rise in public and domestic violence. Despite repeated balance payment problems and forced devaluation of the pound in 1967, the Labour government of the 60s kept things in a reasonably stable condition. 
employment was high and inflation was under control. The 1973 oil crisis shouldered much of the blame when a recession hit, lasting from 1973 to 1975. The Industrial Relation Act of 1971 led to the largest trade union protests for two generations, and two national coal miners' strikes in 1972 and the beginning of 1974. January 1974 led to a national state of emergency. The three-day work week and a general election was called by Heath on the theme, Who Governs Britain? The answer appeared to be the unions, since Heath was defeated and had to resign. This economic background is useful to note the potential mindset of Michael. Michael himself was a little troubled. A butcher by trade, it seems he had back problems that made it difficult for him to work, though he seemed to tough through it since money was tight at the best of times. Now, we'll circle back on this theme in a moment, but the stress for the responsibility for providing for his family would sometimes get Michael down, and it was noted that sometimes he suffered from bouts of depression. Despite this, though, he cared for his family. Everyone commented on how much Michael and Christine seemed to be in love, Michael's father commenting they were still courting throughout their marriage. Throughout this marriage, there hadn't really been any inclination that either of them had been religiously inclined. Michael said that they found the ceremony and the rituals of church services rather off-putting, but ultimately didn't feel strongly about religion in any particular way. It just was something that never really crossed their minds. So what caused them to attend a meeting in September 1974, we will never really know. Their friendly neighbour, Brava Wardman, invited them to join her in attending the Gorba Christian Fellowship Group. Barbara had been attending this church for a while and attested to its wonderfulness. Perhaps the bleak-looking future pushed them just enough to want some hope and friendship that the church promised to offer. Besides, if they didn't like it, it was only a short drive back home. The Christian Fellowship Church was part of the St. Thomas Anglican Church. In the years following up to the Taylor's visit, there had been somewhat of a doctrinal shift. Like Jeff Goldblum at the end of the fly, St. Thomas had melded and fused with a new type of thinking, the charismatic belief system. The Anglicans were the first groups to be influenced by this new thinking, but before the 60s ended, it had infiltrated the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, and eventually the Methodists. The Cambridge Dictionary of Christian Theology considers the charismatic movement an expression of Pentecostal spirituality that resides outside the denominal structures of the classical Pentecostal tradition. It dubs this new form Neo-Pentecostal. Now, what does this mean for someone who might barely be able to tell the difference between Catholic and Protestant? Well, what this movement has done is taken the beliefs and practices of Pentecostalism and applied it to other Christian sects. Now, take a standard Anglican church. We have what you would consider a very basic Christian belief system. Not as flash as the Catholic church with their love of ceremonies and extra-religious dogma in addition to the Bible, but at the same time, they aren't quite as minimalist as the Protestants. They're more so happy to engage in some public worship and flash around some public expressions of their faith. I'm painting with broad strokes, but you get the idea. 
The charismatic movement takes the belief system and filters it through the Pentecostal belief of bona fide miracles. There is a stress on personal encounters with life-changing spirit and acknowledging encounters with it as signs and wonders. These encounters are nothing short of miracles. We have them speaking in tongues, divine healing, and spiritual discernment. It's Christianity with a dash of mysticism, if you will. As with Pentecostal groups, there's a predilection for spontaneous liturgies, repetitive choruses that replace more traditional hymns and chants. In short, the Church of England was rigid and traditional in worship, and the charismatic services were spontaneous, musical, and intensely emotional. The charismatics were passionate, joyful. They spoke in a plain language, offered knowledge through simplicity and certainty and passion. Oh, and they believed that the devil was not some sort of conceptual moral entity limited to a force that causes sin as seen in some sects, but rather a living, breathing entity, a, a human, flesh and blood, human style creature that actively caused sin and harm in people's lives. The church services were filled with people crushed by the contemporary world around them, hoping to answer their dreams and escape their troubles of everyday life. The house meetings that Barbara Woodman attended were led by a young preacher called Marie Robinson. Image link in the podcast description. The Taylors were happily surprised at the meeting. Everyone was welcoming and eager to get to know them. They weren't, quote, stuck-up Jesus freaks. They were just normal people, grocers, accountants, school teachers, what have you. They didn't need hymn books, nor were there any rituals that they had to observe. Everyone was allowed to speak, pray, and sing. The message during the service must have struck a chord with the Taylors. During that first house meeting, under the guidance of Marie Robinson, they converted to Christianity before they even left. It wouldn't be long before Michael and Christine were considered valued members of the group, their house becoming an additional venue for the house meetings. Over the next few weeks, inspired by Marie Robinson, Michael, a quiet, not religious man, began to regularly speak in tongues. Marie Robinson became a mentor to the Taylors. Perhaps it was the religious bliss, or he simply wasn't thinking with his head, but Michael grew close to Marie. She was a charismatic, well-spoken, evangelical Christian, overflowing in passion for her faith, eager to instruct. Michael, caught up in the high of breaking the Christianity speedrun record, developed feelings towards the 22-year-old minister. One night, shortly after their conversion, Barbara visited the Taylors, and she found Michael with his arms on Marie's shoulders. Barbara felt the tension in the air, and, in front of her, Michael told Marie that he, quote, loved her with a Christian love, a love that could hurt no one. Barbara was weirded out by this interaction, but ultimately said nothing. Marie Robinson would later describe herself as a, quote, normal Jesus freak. But here's where the seeds of exorcisms were sowed. Marie was not a stranger to occult practices. She had taken part in several exorcisms, or at the very least been present at them. 
She had been with the Reverend Peter Vincent when he once expelled a couple of particularly violent demons. The night after Michael's declaration of totally Christian love, Marie would attempt an exorcism during a service. Now, accounts from that night all say how truly awful the experience was. The services would often have nights where emotions ran high. It was only natural. The members were all part of a support system, and it offered a chance for people to pour out their troubles and maybe get some advice. So that night, it wasn't exactly odd that everyone was in the mood of emotional intensity. An older spinster, a lady named Mavis Smith, who was going through a period of depression for the past few weeks, began to sob. Now, a more rational and compassionate person would probably ask her what's wrong, provide an ear, some words of comfort, and if appropriate, put forth a plan to help her in the future. Hell, even a session where they stopped and prayed for her would have been rational in this case. Marie jumped on the opportunity, however, to pass judgment that this moment, this moment here, was caused by capital E, evil. An invasive capital E, evil, that must immediately be cast out. She would then, and there, exercise Mavis. Marie would later say, quote, in retrospect and with hindsight, I knew this was wrong. I started shaking. I'm not a nervous person. So in me, it meant the power of the Holy Spirit was within me. In the eyes of the upset Mavis, she saw a preacher approaching her, jittering as if she were having a fit. Before she could consider fleeing, Marie made contact with her, laying her hands on Mavis and beginning the exorcism. Marie would explain what happened next. Quote, I laid my hands on her and prayed. I think I prayed in tongues, because I did not want her to know what I was praying for. She showed a great animosity directed straight at me. I thought she hated me. Old Mavis reacted violently to Marie's sudden assault. Other accounts of the night described the scene as disturbing. Marie was screaming about demons and Mavis was trying to fight her off. This act hit the tailors. This welcoming new group was now seen in a new, more slightly sinister light. Peggy Gilby would later comment that Michael and Christine started to become very nervous of Marie. It was this time that Christine would also see the relationship forming between Marie Robinson and her husband. Michael's good Christian passion also seemed to include a passion for someone who wasn't God, as he was spending an awful lot more time with Marie Robinson. Of course, Christine was happy for Michael's newfound faith and was happy for him to explore it, provided he didn't explore Marie's body. Christine would often write off this suspicion as part of her imagination playing tricks on her. But sometimes it seemed as though when Michael paid particular attention to Marie, she did very little to dissuade him. Either way, the next time the fellowship assembled at the tailors, Christine decided it was time to call out and sort out this situation before it really got too far. In front of the entire group, she stood up, addressing Michael and Marie, saying that this situation needed to be resolved. Christine suggested that Michael and Marie be left alone for a few moments to set things right. Michael and Marie were then provided a space by way of an upstairs room. 
Now we can only go by what Marie reported happened in the room that night, but according to her, once the door was closed, Michael began to speak in tongues. Wait, no, tongue. Michael began to stick his tongue down her throat. Marie recounted, quote, The whole of my being reacted completely against that. We just snapped apart. It was like a clash of wills, a clash of spirits, perhaps. And I said, Mike, you know this is wrong. You know you love Chris. Michael agreed to quell his um, emotions. The pair then asked Christine to return. Of course, it wasn't just Christine. The rest of the members followed her, hoping to hear what was up. Michael announced, We have won a great victory for the Lord. A miracle has happened. We have both overcome our passions. Okay, so now just, just imagine for a moment being in the room with them. Christine asked Michael and Marie to have a moment to acknowledge the closeness and establish some boundaries, and instead Michael comes out and says, It's okay, I prayed the boner away. Michael had just admitted to wanting to have sex with the preacher. Now, obviously, this went through Michael's mind, because according to Marie, he underwent a sudden and sinister transformation. Quote, I glanced at Mike, and his whole features seemed to have changed. He looked almost bestial. There was a wild look in his eyes. I started screaming out of fear. I started speaking in tongues. Mike was also screaming at me in tongues. I did not know what he was saying, or what I was saying. We just screamed at each other. Then Mike started slapping my face. Michael would later testify that he felt an evil force take over. Quote, she was stabbing me with her eyes, he told police. I can still see those eyes. I saw her standing naked before me, and I was naked. Marie, quote, Chris tried to pull him off me. Somehow we were at the other side of the room away from her. He was crouching over me, ready to kill. It was like the pictures of lions ready to kill their prey. I really tasted fear in my mouth. I knew that Jesus would save me, and I started saying his name over and over. With the combined efforts of several members, Michael was pulled off of Marie. She was left scratched and bruised. The next morning, Michael was in anguish over the situation. It didn't really help that Marie came over later that day hoping to see Michael. You see, the smart thing would have been to let the dust settle for a couple of weeks, maybe touch base while there was other parties around. Not Marie. Thankfully, Christine met her at the door and said, I have to get you and Michael apart. Please go. Soon the senior members of St. Thomas had heard about this incident. Before moving to St. Thomas, Peter Vincent had been vicar of the Church of St. John the Divine in a nearby town between 1963 and 1971. Vincent was an enthusiastic exorcist, to say the least. In line with the charismatic movement he introduced to St. Thomas, he believed in the power of healing hands and the casting out of demons, just as Jesus himself performed. Vincent would describe these events as, quote, wonderful. The Reverend and his wife Sally met with the Taylors to get their side of the story. Michael told the Reverend that Marie was the one at fault. She had tried to seduce him and in front of his own wife. Not only that, he seemed to suspect that she 
had somehow caused him to be possessed. Now what we know of Vincent, he doesn't seem to be the type to tell Michael to calm down and discuss the possibility of maybe seeing a shrink, and that's because he didn't. Vincent was completely on board with the demon explanation. Maybe he was intimidated at Marie's youth and charisma, or maybe it was his wife's lowly opinion of her that influenced him. Either way, they agreed with Michael that he was under some kind of demonic influence and that Marie was the cause of it. This hypothesis of demonic possession was only strengthened over the next couple of weeks. News came in to Peter Vincent about Michael and his behaviour. He was clearly emotionally unbalanced. It seemed Marie was the focal point of this aggression and anything related to her. He began reacting violently to anything that had to do with religion, symbols, or representations of faith. He told neighbours that he had seen the devil. Outside of his home, he would kneel in the street and scream. Inside his own home, he would destroy crosses and religious books. He also became fearful of the moon. He was afraid of its connection to Marie's power. Now, of course, of course, this could very well be a case for demonic possession. Or, maybe, just maybe, this could be a man whose mind has gone through some serious emotional whiplash, experienced a nervous breakdown that completely melted his mind. He went from being a normal man with mild depression to a hardcore religious type in the matter of an evening. He was rejected by a woman he loved, and in public, in front of not just his wife, but also his recently found emotional safety net. His mental break was then fed by the reverend, confirming his reality he had created. A sensible response might have been for Michael to ease himself away from the group hysteria, taking a few days or even weeks to spend some time with the wife and kids, ground himself, forget about religion, just relax, maybe check in with the psychiatrist and do a mental health check. Well, the tailors actually planned on doing this, but not before Peter Vincent stepped in. On the 4th of October, Christine Taylor called in at Barbara Wardman's house. Barbara commented on how tired and exhausted she looked. Christine told Barbara that they would not be attending fellowship meetings anymore. They were going to return to their quiet life. Barbara asked if she was alright. According to Barbara, quote, Chrissy told me that they had been up all night. As soon as it began to get dark and the moon was up, Michael started going on about the moon. They sat downstairs in the sitting room all night, making the sign of the cross over each other to keep each other safe. On the night of the 5th of October, the tailors were summoned to the vicarage of Reverend Vincent. The priest had assembled an elite anti-Satan team, the anti-Satan Avengers, the Ocean Eleven of Jesus, a Justice League of Vicars, priestly suicide squad, X-Men of X-Ministers, you get the idea. Apart from Peter Vincent, there was Sally. She had been deeply suspicious of Marie from the beginning, sure she was in league with the devil. Then there was Reverend Raymond Smith, a Methodist preacher from Vincent's old stomping ground, as well as his wife, Peggy. The jury at Michael Taylor's trial would later hear that the pair, quote, 
describe themselves as practitioners in exorcism. And finally, there was Donald James, another Methodist preacher. The exorcism men sat the tales down and told Michael that they were all convinced that what was ailing him was not a nervous breakdown, but rather the devil, capital D, devil. Michael reacted badly. He threw his tea at Vincent and punched him in the face. The group then restrained Michael. Sally Vincent took the view that he, quote, no longer was in control of his faculties. Quote, there was an enormous force of evil emanating from him because of demonic possession, which required exorcism, which was going to be a long job and would take all night. Raymond Smith, it seemed, had a moment of sense. He asked if Michael could simply be stressed and unbalanced. Maybe they should take him to a hospital or a psychiatrist. The inquest was told that, quote, this was considered and solemnly rejected. Let's talk about exorcism for a moment, since we're about to hear Michael's ordeal. If you're like me and most of your exposure to exorcisms has been pop culture, movies, books, and such, then you'll benefit from knowing somewhat of a baseline to the ritual. Now, the rite of exorcism is technically a Catholic how-to guide, but as we'll hear, there's some similarities, and also I really couldn't find anything other than this that's a solid, here's what to do in an exorcism. So, the rite of exorcism is outlined in a document called Of Exorcisms and Certain Supplications, an 84-page document published in 1999, or at least this was the revised version. It contains a short history focusing mainly on Jesus and the early apostles expelling demons, as well as all the prayers required to complete an exorcism. Now, I'm going to drop back a lot of the details that I don't feel are that necessary, but you'll get the general gist of it all. In the rite of exorcism, apart from the formulas of the exorcism themselves, special attention must be paid to those gestures and rites that have the primary place and meaning derived from their use during the time of purification. Such are the sign of the cross and the imposition of hands, the breathing and the sprinkling with holy water. The rite begins with the sprinkling of holy water, by which, as a memorial of the purification received in baptism, the troubled person is defended against the snares of the enemy. The water may be blessed before the rite or within the rite itself before the sprinkling and, if appropriate, with the commingling of salt. Then follows the prayer of litany, which by the mercy of God is invoked upon the troubled person through the disassession of all the saints. After the litany, the exorcist may recite one of several of the psalms that implore the protection of the Most High and the extol of the victory of Christ over the evil one. When the psalm is completed, the exorcist himself may add a psalm prayer. The gospel is then proclaimed as the sign of the presence of Christ, who through his own word in the proclamation of the church brings healing to human infirmities. Afterward, the exorcist imposes his hands upon the troubled person by which the right of the power of the Holy Spirit is invoked, so that the devil will depart from the one through baptism has made the temple of God. At the same time, he may also breathe upon the face of the troubled person. 
Then the Apostles' Creed is recited, or the baptismal promise of faith is renewed, and the renunciation of Satan. The Lord's Prayer follows by which our God and Father is implored to set us free from the evil one. When these things are being completed, the exorcist shows the troubled person the Lord's cross, which is the source of every blessing and grace, and the sign of the cross is made over the person, by which Christ's power over the devil is shown. Finally, he petitions God, and in the name of the Christ, the devil is commanded to withdraw from the troubled person. The rite is then concluded with a canticle of thanksgiving, a prayer, and a blessing. So prior to the rite, there are questions. The exorcist asks as many questions as possible to ascertain what type of demon they're dealing with, their name, the reason for possessing the person. The troubled person, who are referred to as the victim, is taken through almost like an absolution or confession, maybe even a renewing of baptismal vows, renouncing evil and sin and such. Then the exorcist begins the rite of exorcism. It is possible that a single rite is not enough and that a victim might undergo multiple exorcisms as part of a single session, or the exorcist might determine that the victim needs to rest and schedule another session for another time. Leaving Christine at the vicarage, under guard of course, the vicar and his party of super exorcists restrained Michael. At midnight, quote, they took him down into the church vestry, they laid him down, and at times had to hold him down, and took in turns to exorcise each particular demon. He was made to confess the sins of which he was innocent, and was subjected to indignities which defy comprehension. These include having crosses pushed into his mouth, as well as sprinkled with holy water. They made a list of the spirits which they had cast out. Incest, bestiality, blasphemy, lewdness, hearsay, masochism, and many others. At one stage, a wooden cross Mr. Taylor was wearing was burned. Michael tried to get away. He was tied down. Over the next seven hours, Vincent claimed to have expelled over 40 demons from Michael. According to the Reverend, by 7am, Michael only had three demons left in him. Murder, violence, and insanity. It's kind of strange that they left those ones for last. I would have expelled those three first, and left maybe, say, lewdness, blasphemy, and hearsay. Then, instead of potentially killing in a deranged state, the worst he could have gone done is gotten naked, called himself Yeezy, and said the other Jesus was, like, just a dude. Either way, the exorcists were exhausted by this point in the morning. Please, think of all the talking and holy water flicking that they had done. And Michael, uh, well, he might have been in a state. Now, there's something to be said about how these rituals can affect the mind. We have Michael already in the mindset that he had a demon in him, stirred into a frenzy by all the prayers and chanting, and called on higher powers. His fragile mind got thinner and thinner until that morning when his insanity was hanging on by a mere wire. The plan was to conclude the exorcism after all elite demon slayers had had some tea, maybe a biscuit, and a nap. Early in the morning, Reverend Peter Vincent contacted the police and told them what had happened in St. Thomas that night. The constable he talked to had no idea what this whole exorcism stuff was about, 
Keep in mind that this is October 1974, the Exorcist movie had run in cinemas in the UK only about six months ago. But he urged them to get Michael to a GP to check him out. Note, a sensible man. Christine had apparently undergone an exorcism as well, performed by the two women in the Stop Satan squad. She was also in a weakened physical and mental state. She refused to go to a doctor, insisting that she needed to get back to her own home. Christine called a family friend, John Eggins, who drove the traumatized Taylors back home and, and I cannot stress this enough, thankfully took the kids to stay with their grandparents for a while, a few hours out of town. So, here's an interaction soon after this, as reported by the Reverend himself, along with Philip Gill, the coroner, and Julian Hallam, acting for the Taylors. Vincent, we did feel very strongly that if Christine returned home without any protection, there would be serious trouble. Gill, there could have been a murder. Vincent, of her? Yes. We had not been able to expel the spirit of murder, and there was... In Michael's eyes, towards the end of the ministry, in the vestry, a look that I could only describe as murder. Hallam, you have even gone as far saying that you knew the victim would be Christine, or you were fearful for her safety? Vincent, we were. Hallam, but you left at 7.30am, and that was it? You had something else to do? Vincent, I personally left, but that does not mean the subject was dropped. Just after 10am, PC Walker's desk phone rang. He took the details and was soon crouching beside a man covered in blood, screaming forgiveness for himself on a footpath. It was Michael Taylor. Locals began to crowd around as the ambulance piled up. Michael was taken away, still screaming. Walker didn't have to look far to find Michael's house. It was only down the road a little. He thought it would be best to visit the home immediately. It was just at 10.45am when he pulled up to the Taylor's house. He thought he was the first to arrive at the home, but local police sergeant had told him otherwise. The sergeant was pale. Walker told him that he had a call and found Michael Taylor naked and covered in blood, screaming about the devil. Walker was about to give his opinions on Michael's mental state when a detective inspector walked out of the house. He bent over, hands on knees, and dry heaved, repeating, Oh God, and Oh Jesus. After spitting on the pavement, the dick asked who Walker was, and the sergeant told him that Walker had found Michael. Walker apparently looked like he had thoughts to enter the house, but the detective, who was holding a handkerchief to his mouth, held his hand up in a stop gesture. You married? He asked Walker. Walker confirmed. Kids? Confirmed again. Then you are not coming in, the detective firmly told him. You do not want to see this one, son. I've seen nothing like it before, and I've seen a few. Walker would remember the look in Michael's eyes. The blood. Michael saying whose blood this is. The detective spoke again. It's the wife. She's got no... He's ripped at her, son. It's a mess right there. There's not much of her left. You don't want to see it. 
Walker felt the need to look. It's the blood of Satan rang through his head. Walker went in and had a look. They couldn't find a weapon. There wasn't any. The blood that covered Michael was Christine's. After 7.30am before 10am, in a brutal display of violence, Michael Taylor killed his wife, his closest companion, in the home where they reared their children. He had ripped her face off, literally, through the skin, past the muscle, down to the bone. He gouged out her eyes and tore out her tongue with bare hands. The home was destroyed. Strips of flesh and pulp matter covered every inch of the room. Christine had died from asphyxiation on her own blood. Beside Christine laid the family dog, prized pet of Christine, strangled and torn apart. Its legs had been ripped from their sockets, the hair, teeth and eyes ripped from the head. In custody later that day, Michael told Detective Inspector Brian Smith about the exorcisms. Quote, it was a long night. They danced around me and burned my cross because it was tainted with evil. They had me in the church all night. Look at my hands. I was banging on the floor. The power was in me. I couldn't get rid of it and neither could they. It was too late. I was compelled by a force within me to destroy everything living in the house. Detective Inspector Smith asked him how he felt. Released. I am released. It is done. The evil in her has been destroyed. Then Michael slept. He slept a long time. In 1975, Michael Taylor was tried for the murder of Christine Taylor. He claimed that after the exorcism, Christine was also possessed by demons. He was found not guilty of the crime of murder by any reason of insanity and sent to Broadmoor Mental Hospital. During his trial, everything came to light, his relationship with Marie and the events of the exorcism. This is an extract from the inquest audit. Ognall, to what extent, if at all, did you say that what was practiced upon Michael Taylor that night induced his trance state the following morning? Dr. Milne, consultant psychiatrist. It was entirely related to his trance state and his eventual killing of his wife. Justice Caulfield would then comment, I am not here to interfere with religion. This case is bound to achieve some notoriety but for those who care for us and govern us, may well be concerned. And if they are concerned, they know far better than I what should be done. But those people that Caulfield advised to be concerned weren't really. They didn't really do anything. No other party was held accountable for Christine's murder, even though the exorcist party certainly should have been held accountable for not taking Michael's mental state seriously. It would be another year or two before the case of Annalise Mickles, where her parents and two priests would be held accountable for negligence. The Anglican Church did attempt to place restrictions on the future use of exorcisms. The general mindset was that it was, quote, stupid to grant any degree of recognition to the phenomenon of possession. 
though they were kind of in a hard rock in a stuck place, since they couldn't fully denounce the belief in the devil or the danger that he has in our lives, because if you dismiss the devil as nonsense, where does that leave God and the rest of the Bible? Evangelicals, on the other hand, considered this a huge success. They didn't see their dangers in Christine's murder, they only saw how one had to complete their mission. Peter Vincent's error wasn't deluded sadism, but carelessness. He had left a pot on to boil instead of finishing his cooking. Michael Taylor spent the next couple of years at Broadmoor, then a couple of years at Bradford Royal Infirmary before being released. In 2005, he was found guilty of indecently touching a teenage girl. He was in jail for this only for a week before he began exhibiting behaviour similar to that that preceded Christine's murder in 1974. He went to court again and was again sent to a psychiatric hospital. The years immediately following Christine's death, Taylor had attempted suicide on four separate occasions. Walker would comment after his retirement from the force that nothing affected him in his 30 years with the police more than this case has. It seems of the exorcists, Raymond Smith showed what would be considered remorse, saying that he might not have handled the situation well. Quote, If people come to me in trouble of any kind, I will try to help. I would give such comfort as I could, but I am only an ordinary human being with human failings. Peter Vincent, as you can gather from the previous interview with him, had absolutely no remorse. He doubled down and insisted that the reason the tailor acted as he did was because he was slash is troubled by demons. And this is the thing that really annoys me. It would be one thing if, even if it wasn't charged, if he was socially shunned or had any sort of repercussions. But no, his career in the church was fine. In fact, the year after this incident, he was promoted to priest in charge to vicar. This position got him tenure at Gorba, set up for life. When questioned about that night, the obliteration of life, the four kids who would grow up parentless, this monster took it in the cheeriest of strides, saying, quote, God will bring good out of this in his own way. And that concludes the chapter of history about Michael Taylor's botched exorcism. This has been the Sex and Murder Podcast. Thank you for listening.